Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Political scientists have been saying for years that Americans are ideologically or rhetorically conservative but operationally liberal. It's absolutely true. They talk like Jeffersonians and insist on being governed by Hamiltonians. Hello. Welcome to Mr. Clunch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is my old Washington Post colleague, George Will. Doesn't need a ton of introduction, legendary conservative columnist, uh, but he's written a new book, a fascinating book called The Conservative Sensibility. It's an effort to articulate a conservatism that is Will's conservatism, is a much more narrow conservatism than what we think of as a conservative movement, which I think contains a lot of alliances with philosophically different traditions than the one he's talking about. But what's interesting to me about what Will's doing here is he's trying to, to define, as he says, a sensibility, a, a temperament, and, and, and that temperament is narrower. It is very rooted in a particular idea of the founders and natural rights and what human nature is. Um, there's an argument he wants to have in the book. I, I feel like I tried and couldn't quite get him to have it here on the podcast, but there's an argument he wants to have in the book about the plasticity or lack thereof of human nature and what kind of government follows from that. Um, and his view is that a very limited government follows very directly from a clear idea of human nature. And the founders understood that and that the central task in America today, certainly the central conservative task, is to preserve that understanding of the founders. And in doing that, he's going somewhere, I think, forthrightly that is where a lot of conservatism is going less forthrightly. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy he's doing so, which is he's really making an argument against democracy, against the assumed primacy of democracy. He's, again, I, I push him on it here. He's a little softer on it, I would say, in this conversation. But he really makes a strong argument in the book for much more expansive judicial review and a state and a constitutional structure and an approach to constitutional interpretation that would be very skeptical of majorities, that would be very limited in what it would be possible to do, and that would take, as he says it quite directly, liberty and not democracy as a central driver of the project. Now, of course, who decides what liberty is? Who decides what natural rights people have, who decides a lot of this is very open for contestation. And we do some of that contesting in this episode. But uh, I do think it is interesting to try to think about the conservatism Will is identifying, the way in which it is a sensibility as much or more than it's an ideology. And that way, there's a real resonance to this episode and the Adam Gopnik episode, which is similarly about a book trying to identify a liberal sensibility and temperament. And I also think that this move of conservatism away from being a at least quasi or presumptively populist movement that says it speaks for a majority and towards something that 
is more confident speaking for a minority and argues that that is the, the, the proper role of it. That's always been a thread in it, but I think it's coming out much more uh, partially as a consequence of demographic change and other changes in what it looks like the, the public wants and where it's going to go. I think it's something that bears close watching, both in terms of its practical effect and in the ways it is getting theorized. Uh, and Will, of course, is one of the people who's going to be very important in theorizing it. So I think this is an important conversation. Here's George Will. George Will, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be with you. So you write in the introduction that there is a braided relationship between a person's political philosophy and his or her sensibility. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. I, I, by sensibility, I mean something more than an attitude but less than an agenda. I didn't want to write another book telling people 10 things to fix America or what to think. I'm more interested in how to think. And I'm particularly interested in the fact that I think how we think – is a result somewhat of our sensibility of how we respond to the flux and flow of things in a complex society. So uh, that's as close as I can come to defining it. I, I like that you brought that up at the beginning because I've been thinking a lot about this literature people have now on political psychology, which I have some discomfort with and some comfort with. But there's this idea in it, uh, John Jost, who's a psychologist at New York University, calls it elective affinities. Yes. That depending on where you start with your psychological makeup, whether you like change or you prefer tradition, you know, how open you are to things, that some ideas will be of more appeal to you. And it feels like you're sort of getting at that idea here. I, I may be wrong, but did, didn't Goethe coin the phrase elective affinities and didn't he get it from chemistry? Yes, that's um, where John is grabbing that from. Right. So it, 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 there is a sense in which I'm talking about the, the personal chemistry you have. Um, I could put it in a less a recondite way by quoting uh, Virginia Postrel, who said, the, the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. The conservative <laughs> sensibility, as I understand it, says that's terrific. The conservative sensibility finds the lack of design and lack of control of a spontaneous order, free market society, to be exhilarating. Some people find it uh, frightening. Others find it offensive that things are going on without people organizing it, bossing people around. The conservative sensibility says lack of control is a good thing. It's funny because I think when a lot of people think of conservatives and the conservative movement, they think of a preference for order. That's often assumed to be within the, the conservative both agenda and the, the psychological makeup. And so you're talking about something more specific. You're talking about uh, a group of people who are actually quite comfortable with a, a sort of disorder. Yes, the people who say conservatism wants to defend order have a good point, but the wrong country. Uh, European conservatism evolved in, dis in defense of established institutions, orders, and hierarchies, often nobility, often monarchy, often established churches. And it became self-conscious and articulate uh, under Burke, who was, of course, in strong recoil against the French Revolution and its turmoils and wound up celebrating the British public as the stolid, cud-chewing cow in, in, the, in the meadow with grasshoppers making lots of noise but having no consequence. American conservatism is something the reverse, which is to say it, it celebrates and wants to reconcile people to the hazards and frictions granted and the creative destruction, which is both creative but destructive, but ultimately the exhilaration of a free society. So there's a, a tension in this between the conservatism that is comfortable with the, the creative destruction of the market, 
And then something that's given conservatism a lot of its political movement power in this country, which has often been a defense of the pre-existing social hierarchies. I mean, Goldwater, who figures prominently in the book, the states he won were the states of the old Confederacy based not really on a preference for uh, a free market uh, approach to affairs, but to a defense and uh, a frustration about the way things were changing in their in their um, states. So how, how do those things reconcile? They don't always reconcile. There, there are tensions within conservatism. There's the localism uh, that took a particularly unseemly and nasty turn in, in the Jim Crow laws, which reflected local majorities, but so much the worse for that. But there is in conservatism a social conservatism that says if you're going to have the kind of free market, lightly governed society, you're presupposing a moral capital that uh, institutions, religious and otherwise, have to have to nurture. And uh, therefore, the civil society becomes a, a principal concern of those who are less concerned about uh, a strong regulatory administrative state. So your book is built very much on the idea that there's a fundamental conflict between conservatives and progressives on the idea of human nature. Can you tell me a bit about what that conflict is? Yes. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who became the first president to criticize the American founding, did so not peripherally but root and branch. He said, first, don't read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. It will only mislead you. It's Fourth of July rhetoric. He said, the doctrine of natural rights is anthropologically foolish, that uh, there was never a social contract, never a state of nature and all that, which is hardly the point. The framers were not fools about this. And he also said that what flows from the doctrine of natural rights and a constant human nature is a government of limited scope and competence in the separation of powers. He, he rejected all of that. And what conservatives say is if you're going to have natural rights, you have to have a constant human nature. That is, rights are essential to the flourishing of creatures of our nature. You notice I do this without any reference to a creator and to a deity at all. One of the chapters in my book that I'm most fond of and has given most heartburn to some of my friends is called Conservatism Without Theism. There's no reason in the world why conservatives have to have a, a religious foundation of their beliefs. But what happens and what's frightening after the 20th century is when people deny that there is a constant human nature, they say that human beings are simply creatures who acquire the culture in which they're situated, then you open the way to an enormous governmental project. Politics becomes about shaping the culture and by doing so, shaping human beings. And we've seen far too much bloodshed in the 20th century about people who are going to remake German man, Aryan man, Soviet man, etc. So I don't know too many people who truly deny the idea of human nature, but I take your point that there's a wide range of views on how much is nature and how much is culture. I found the idea of human nature a bit under-theorized in the book. Can you give me your view of human nature, what you see as a conservative view of human nature, and where it, where it differs, not from Woodrow Wilson's view, but, you know, I'm a progressive. Where does it differ from mine? Uh, well, I don't know yours, but I'll, I'll tell you what John Locke and James Madison had in mind, and you, you can tell me where it differs. Uh, Locke said that uh, individuals are self-conscious, self-defining through action creatures, they are largely interested, self-interested, 
and will behave in more or less predictable ways, which is to say politics can take its bearings from the steady constants in human behavior. The ancients said, let's, let's define what is the best in life and aim for it in politics. Uh, conservatives say, what's the worst in life and let's try to avoid it. And the worst result in politics is tyranny and you, you work from there, how to limit government and make tyranny, including tyrannical majorities, less likely. And so that's a definition of human nature that can be understood as very broad, but but in the way that you approach it, I think it's more narrow. So there's something there's something interesting in the architecture you construct in the book about how a very certain idea of human nature leads to a very certain idea of natural rights, which leads to a very certain idea of limited government. And it, talk to me a bit more about that because the description you just gave doesn't, I think, give a lot of guidance on whether or not you should say have a national healthcare system. Right. Well, I, d I don't think. An understanding of human nature answers that question. I don't think much policy in terms of the kind of granular policy to which you refer flows from this. What does flow from this is an understanding that human nature is not plastic, that people are not as malleable as some people thought they were. John Dewey, for example, and some of the early political scientists at the turn of the 20th century, uh, they said that people were, again, reflections of an ever-evolving culture, and it's a political project to take charge of the evolution of the culture to make sure that it progresses, hence progressives. It seems to me there are two ideas built into that, and I agree with one and probably disagree with the other. It does seem to me that human beings are remarkably plastic. What they're not is predictable. The idea that if you go back over our history, you know, we were hunter-gatherers living in big kinship communities and so on, we have adapted to extraordinarily different circumstances, and that's clearly something that is coming from our plasticity around culture and, and, and social cues. On the other hand, the idea that we can organize that and direct it in a clear, rationalistic way is, I think, proven wrong again and again throughout history. So it, it seems to me that you can take half of that without taking the other half. You probably can. Uh, I, I, I think the conservative sensibility wants both halves. But so the reason I bring up something like healthcare is that in the book, the argument you're making, as I understand, and you can tell me if this is wrong, is that this idea of human nature flows into idea of limited government. And this idea of limited government flows into strictures that if you're taking human nature seriously, you have to keep in place. And as, as I understand those strictures, they would take things like um, a big national healthcare system off the table, or there are other examples you can give that would probably be better than that one. And so that's where that's where I wonder because I, I I take some of the philosophical points, but they're trying to come now into a, a quite narrow vision of what government can do, which is which is a big jump from that Lockean idea of what a human being's nature truly is. It is a big jump, but uh, the question of the proper scope and actual competence of government are not severable questions, and they are largely informed by human experience short-term experience in the, in the United States from the New Deal on. Uh, in, the, in the larger context, the last uh, 600 years of North Atlantic community history, again, informs us about the, the proper scope and actual competence. And as I say, those are not quite severable questions. So you have a, a nice line on this in the book, and it, it almost struck me as one of the key paragraphs. You write, 
The empirical case for limited government is that although human beings have something in common, human nature, they are different in capacities and aspirations. From, from this it follows, not logically but practically, the government cannot hope to provide happiness for all. The most it can reasonably expect to provide are the conditions under which happiness as each defines it can be pursued. If this is to be defined as an empirical question, then it seems we could look at places that have done different things, see if people are happier, and go from there. I, I take the sense that that probably would not be amenable to you. So, so tell me a little bit about what it, it would. It would depend on. You have to have a conception of what happiness is worthy. There's worthy happiness and unworthy happiness, as Huxley and Brave New World and others have, have explored in literature. Who gets to decide that? No one gets to decide it. That's the point of having a market society, which is that people are free to define happiness on their own terms and pursue it in their own way. Understanding that, and this is why people called Isaiah Berlin's liberalism tragic liberalism, that it means there are limits to your ability to reconcile all of these. There are limits to social harmony. There are, however, because there are limits to harmony, there must be a, a broad ethic of toleration. But you must understand, said Berlin and others, that this is an earnestly anti-utopian political enterprise. But given that a lot of the distinctions here be made between us and, say, Canadians or Western Europeans, and that if we look at their societies, I don't think they look like dystopic um, hellholes, <laughs> how, much, how much guidance does this give us? I think it gives you a fair amount in that when you talk about, to come back to what you, the subject you raised, uh, national health insurance, that's largely a utilitarian call. And as I say in the book, people who are, are secular definers of natural rights are really rule utilitarians. There are people who said that human experience in what we call adva more advanced societies have shown that the following protections and rights and the following restrictions on or duties for government serve as a rule to make people have a worthy happiness. So in that sense, as I say, we're all rural utilitarians learning as we go along. And you frame that reasonably positively. It seems to me you're saying that you can hold those opinions and even potentially be a conservative. Sure. That's interesting to me. That isn't where I would have thought you would go because you argue for a version of judicial review in the book that I think would take a lot of this off the table. And as I understand it, it flows from these fundamental assumptions of human nature and limited government. But does it not? Am I, am I misunderstanding that chain? I do have a, a very expansive role for, uh, for the judiciary in the chapter I call the judicial supervision of democracy to produce what Madison and one of my favorite of his phrases uh, advocated to produce mitigated democracy. I'm not saying that social security or Medicare or what have you, should be considered unconstitutional. I am saying that uh, there are certain rights necessary to human flourishing to that, uh, enumerated or not, and the Ninth Amendment, of course, provides for uh, unenumerated rights, not the existence of which is not disparaged by their not being enumerated in the, in the Constitution. For example, I would say that the, I think, as I argue at length in the book, the Lochner decision was quite right because the freedom to contract is fundamental to the flourishing of autonomous individuals, either as individuals or cooperating voluntarily as, uh, as uh, in, in groups. 
But something you argued there was that you're not really saying that Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, should be rendered unconstitutional. But if your view is Lochner was wrongly decided, or I'm sorry, that there there was rightly a lot of value decided. in I'm sorry, rightly decided, <laughs> yes. There was a value in the court in the Lochner era. Um, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, but my understanding is that the most people believe that if you kept a Lochner era jurisprudence, you would have a lot of those projects. I can't say specifically Social Security or Medicare, which came after, but those kinds of projects would have been ruled out of bounds, and certainly the kinds of projects we think about today would be. No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. What? Uh, first place, I don't think there was a Lochner era. That is, I don't think there was an era in which generally social welfare legislation was struck down as interfering with the right of contract. What happened in the Lochner case was pretending to protect public health and welfare. New York, at the behest of large unionized bakeries, passed a rent-seeking law, that is, a law to bend public power to personal advantage and to disadvantage competitors. That is, to disadvantage by, by stipulating limits on the number of hours bakers could work. They could handicap the smaller, non-unionized uh, bakeries with which the big big boys competed. And what the court didn't say quite clearly enough but could have said is, look, this is we're striking this down not because there is not a state police power to protect public health and welfare, but because this isn't doing that. This is plain rent-seeking on the part of individuals using the government to private advantage. Uh, which is why, as I say, there really wasn't a Lochner era. Enormous number of cases where the court said, fine, this is well within the police power of the state. They just ruled Lochner out of this. So should it be possible for the government to enact laws limiting work weeks? Work weeks? Uh, sure. But first thing you have to say, when the government says we're going to limit people's freedom to contract to work longer hours, for example— the government ought to say what his reason is. For example, when uh, in various states, laws were passed saying women could not be bartenders. You say, well, that's protecting motherhood and the home and f the fair sex and all that. Turned out it was the men bartenders who were, again, who were passing these laws to protect their own jobs. That, it seems to me, is, a, is the proper role of the courts is to look at the motives. But it sounds like you're arguing for something close to a rational basis standard, which you, you're quite critical of in the book. <laughs> no, that exactly. if the government has a good reason for what it's doing, then, you know, fair enough. No doubt. Yeah. Ah, but what the rational basis test has become in practice is if the government says it has a reason, any reason will do. What I'm saying is the reason ought to be held up to the bright light that says a reason that is really rent-seeking a reason that is handicapping one portion of the population to enrich another is not uh, is not due process. That it is it is capricious and unreasonable use of public power. Help me draw out the distinctions here. So I want to say for for readers, like this book is beautifully written, and it's a as somebody trying to write a book, it's it's an achievement. Like I'm I I admire anybody who can do something at at, at this structure and and um, coherence and god awful and, length. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it genuinely it's impressive to me, and it's actually amazing to me to hear your you're as quick with the references and that kind of associational writing and speech as you are in writing. It's I, I would love to sort of be inside your mind for a bit on that. Um, I feel like I don't of the memory for anything. But that said, the book seems to me to be constructing an argument from philosophic first principles for a very different world than the one that 
someone like me would prefer, someone who's more on the liberal side of the spectrum. And fair, and, and, and I think that's fair enough, but I'm having a lot of trouble in this conversation drawing out the distinctions. When I sort of push on one, I'm getting, well, it's not, maybe it would be okay. I get the feeling you want something quite different than what we see, that you think we've gone quite far off, off, off the rails. So tell me about how America should look to you. Tell me about what we would look like if we hadn't taken this wrong turn around the era of Wilson. Um, and gotten into this position where we're now at each other's throats and have low trust in government and have, in some fundamental way, betrayed the American project. Yes, well, you talk about low trust in government. Uh, the book is dedicated to the memory of Barry Goldwater, for whom I cast my first presidential vote, in 1964 when the American people said, 77% of them said, they trusted the government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the time. Today, it's 17%. Now, I would think my progressive friends would be interested in the fact that this 60-point collapse has occurred because everything progressives want to do depends on strong government, and a strong government depends at the end of the day on public confidence in the government. You ask, how would America be different? We'd be much more lightly regulated. We would be much, The states would be less uh, administrative appendages of the federal government. We would have congressional supremacy reestablished. We would not have a presidency untethered from any restraints imposed by the separation of powers. We would have a presidency not empowered to declare emergencies and wield powers given to him by Congress. The complaints that modern presidents usurp powers is unfortunately not true. Uh, they're wielding powers that were all too willingly given them because the one thing my hero James Madison got wrong was he said that under popular government, all power is sucked into the impetuous vortex of the legislature. In fact, legislatures have been spinning off the powers. The Congresses under both parties have been spinning off powers to presidents of both parties. So I agree with a lot of that. It does seem to me that the trust in government argument, there are so many ways to read what's been a long term now fall going back to the Watergate era um, that it is hard to know what would bring trust in government back, uh, but it is hard for me to believe that if government were doing less to solve the problems people felt they had, that they would like it better. Well, it's curious, though, that, that as government's pretensions and solicitousness has, have grown, its prestige has plummeted. This began in the 1960s when government, as a result of the landslide against Goldwater in 1964, produced the first liberal legislative majority in Congress since 1938, when I would remind my progressive friends that Roosevelt lost his liberal legislative majority because he tried to pack the Supreme Court and tried to purge Democratic opponents of that. I, I would think that Progressives and others ought to say, look, what government does that it knows how to do is something like Social Security. You identify an eligible cohort and mail the cohort checks. It's good at that. What it's not good at is creating, for example, model cities or nation building abroad. That's far more ambitious than what the New Deal had in mind and, and far more subject to disappointment. And disappointment produces the curdled American attitude toward the national government that exists today. So I largely agree with that. Let me go back to the the, the story about trust because I think it's interesting. So one problem with all this, of course, is we don't have survey data going back much further than the, you know, depending on the question, yes. 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but I think that it 
seems experientially true and people seem to believe that the New Deal era, which um, follows a large expansion of governmental power, is a period of is a high watermark for trust in government. And then the Nixon era and what follows it, you begin to see a, a large and consistent fall. And it, it, it would appear to me that there's a consistent story here that says something like, you had very mixed political parties with low polarization and a not very nationalized media for quite a bit of time. And that led to reasonably high trust in government. And then as the parties polarized and you developed, for that matter, a conservative movement that was quite uh, insistent and consistent about attacking government and trying to paint it in a bad light and bring attention to its failures, you developed a more oppositional media that people took all that seriously and that there's an ongoing war about what the government can do, but also about whether or not you like the people in charge, um, which we increasingly um, dislike the other party. And that just part of the fall in government is a little bit less about what government's doing and more about what is being said about it and reported on about it. I think that's right. Uh, I am frankly bewildered by the intensity of our political argument today because I don't know what we're arguing about. I'm much more alarmed by, not by the discord in America, but by the consensus, which is, uh, extends from Elizabeth Warren on the left to Ted Cruz on the right, and it is this. We should have a large, active, generous welfare state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that, as far as I can tell. The public loves it. They get a dollar's worth of government and are, are charged 80 cents for it, and uh, the difference is fobbed off on the unconsenting because unborn future generations. Whereas we used to borrow money for the future, we fought wars for the future, built roads, harbors, airports for the future. Now we're borrowing from the future to finance our own consumption of government goods and services, and everyone's agreed on this. It seems to me the political class is more united by self-class interest than it is divided by ideology in this regard. I think in this regard, it's true. I mean, one thing that is notable is if you if you pull the question back a little bit from what government is doing to simply how it's paying for it, you have not seen um, inside the conservative movement either. And you have, a, I think, a pretty interesting section on the problems with uh, Star of the Beast approaches to, to taxing and spending. You've not seen a consistent uh, effort to make government live within its means, even from the people who said that is what they believed. And I'm curious why you think that is. Why, for instance, did Paul Ryan, who built his career on budgets and deficits when he became speaker, pass tax cuts that weren't paid for, but also pass spending that wasn't paid for? Because he couldn't control his caucus. That is that uh, Paul has, had read his Hayek and Friedman and all the rest and believed what he said, but he couldn't get the other people in his caucus to believe it. So, and he was, of course, drafted. These drafts rarely happen in American politics, but he truly was drafted to be speaker when Boehner left and uh, was ill-suited to the job. He was right not to want it. And uh, political scientists have been saying two things for about 60 years, or at least they were back 60 years ago. They said, A, wouldn't America be better off if we had more European-style parties if we just sort these things out, get rid of the liberal Republicans and the conservative Democrats, and then America would be fine. Well, turned out not to be the case. Uh, second, political scientists have been saying for years that Americans are uh, ideologically or rhetorically conservative, but operationally liberal. It's absolutely true. They talk like Jeffersonians and insist on being governed by Hamiltonians. You argue that 
the American experiment is fundamentally about the founding experiment, and it's about the, the, the views of the founders as embedded in the Constitution, which operationalizes the Declaration of Independence. Can you talk a bit about that view of what we are doing here in America today and how it differs from some of the competitive views? Yes, I should say that uh, among those who sternly reject that view that, of mine that you just accurately described was, for example, Justice Scalia. Scalia said the Constitution contains no philosophizing. The Declaration was a revolutionary document, uh, useful in its time and place, but uh, has nothing to do with the Constitution. My view of the Constitution is that it should be read in the light cast by that, that originalists should be concerned most and first with what did the founders intend. And they intended a society of uh, – where natural rights are the principal duty of government, it's the protection thereof. The most important verb in the constitutions in the second paragraph, or in the declarations in the second paragraph, it says all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. And when you start from that, you, uh, you, you are put on the path to limited government and to the, therefore the respect for the what Hayek called the spontaneous order of a market society, which is um, the most Burkean aspect. That's how we sort of translate Burke into American language. What Burke talked about, the slow evolution of, of a society such as England uh, becomes in the United States a celebration of the spontaneous order of a market society and necessarily the creative destruction that comes with that. For that bolt to travel clearly to our own time, the founders have to be pretty unitary. And in your book, often you know it's spoken of as what the founders intended. But as you also write about in the book, immediately after the founding, you have the founders split into the political parties. They said they didn't want, in part over differing views of what the Constitution permits and was intended to create. So given the diversity among the founders and also the frustration of some of them, even with the institutions they did agree to create, like the Senate, how can we talk clearly about what the founders intended? By understanding that while well, we had these robust, wonderfully interesting arguments over, say, a national bank, pitting Madison and Jefferson on one side and Hamilton and in the end Washington on the other, they were arguing about what kind of people we were going to be. That is, uh, Jefferson said, and this is one of the reasons he leapt at and expanded executive power rather promiscuously in order to leap at the, the chance to per make the Louisiana Purchase, that we need a vast, extensive republic in which there would be lots of land for steady, rural, self-reliant yeoman rather like Thomas Jefferson. And Hamilton said, no, actually we want public credit and a system of finance and uh, a debt to uh, help with economic growth to allow for a restless, entrepreneurial, striving, urban, manufacturing, commercial class of people rather like Alexander Hamilton. So they were really arguing about the soul of the country, what kind of people we were going to be. I once wrote a book um, read by dozens called Statecraft as Soulcraft. It was based on the Godkin lectures I gave at Harvard in 1981, in which I argued, it was actually the subtitle of the book is more interesting, is 
statecraft or soulcraft, or what government does, not what government should do, but what government can't help but do, that when you organize a society, and particularly when you pick an economic system, you are of necessity picking the kind of people you're going to deal with. Your statecraft becomes soulcraft. There's a wonderful passage in to Tocqueville that illustrates this. He, he's floating down in the 1830s, floating down the Ohio River. On his left is slaveholding Kentucky, torpid, sluggish, no energy. On the right is Ohio, crackling with energy and commercial uh, cities and communities springing up. And, and the Tocqueville said, this matters. What kind of uh, economic system you have will tell you what kind of people you're going to be. And uh, I think America made a wise choice to have a, a, a robust, constantly churning market society with the consequent kind of individualism celebrated. What alarms conservatives is when people say, and, and this worries me more than anything about the American future, is that we'll now have a great flinch. People will say, well, that's all very well once, but this kind of freedom is stressful, and there are casualties and frictions and uncertainties, and it's just not worth it anymore. And I, th I think that would be a, a, a double tragedy. A, because I think this is the kind of American we want to be, this kind of restless, striving, mobile Hamiltonian country, but also because we no, no longer have a real choice. The American people have said we're going to make enormous promises to ourselves in entitlement programs, enormous calls, that is, on the future productivity of the country. Well, having made that, you have to, if you will the end, you have to will the means to that end, and the means to that end is a robust, open to the world, globalized market society generating wealth at a pace somewhat commensurate with the promises we've made. So I want to hold here for a minute, though, on the question of founder interpretation, because as you go through the book, you're arguing for the judiciary at this point to take on a much more expansive role than I think even most conservatives talk about. You criticize conservatives who in their role, criticize judicial activism, and you say that, no, we should have a quite activist judiciary on behalf of the Constitution. But given what you're saying here, it does seem to me a pretty fundamental difference in a lot of these interpretations, and to some degree in like the braided sensibilities that lead to our, our current ideologies and, and, and disputes, is this issue of how should we interpret and can we in these ways interpret the founders? You criticize Scalia for being into a dead originalism. You endorse something closer to a living originalism, and certainly many on, on the left argued then go further and say, we just have a living constitution. But within that, it seems to me we just kind of keep ending up in this debate over did the founders say things that we can hear clearly today or were they in so much dispute among themselves that it is very hard and particularly given how much we've changed the system they set up to hear them clearly. And much of the dispute in contemporary American politics to me seems to be about how do you think about that question and then how do you approach tradition? Like what are you are you looking for tradition to provide you your answers? Are you mistrustful of the answers tradition provides you? Uh, let me be slightly autobiographical here, if I may. Uh, I wrote 50 years ago, I wrote my doctoral dissertation at Princeton, and the title was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. It's 
a phrase from the second of the flag salute cases, the one in which they overturned a decision just three years earlier when they had held that it is okay as an exercise of the police power of the state to require Jehovah's Witnesses' children to salute the flag even though it violated their fundamental beliefs because the government was saying national unity is a public good and we can promote it this way. In his opinion, uh, overturning that in West Virginia v. Barnett, Justice Jackson said uh, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities and above the vicissitudes of politics. Before I went and did that, I grew up in central Illinois, Lincoln country, Champaign-Urbana. My father was a professor at the University of Illinois. And according to local lore, Abram Lincoln, a prosperous traveling railroad lawyer, was in the Champaign County Courthouse when he learned of the passage by Stephen A. Douglas, the Illinois senator, of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which purported to solve the problem of the question of expanding slavery into the territories. Douglas said, the important doctrine for an American is popular sovereignty. Vote it up, vote it down in the territories, a matter of moral indifference. The morally important point is that we have majority rule. This translated 50, 60 years later into Oliver Wendell Holmes, a great progressive pinup, who said, if the American people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job, that is, to get out of the way of majorities, of the dominant forces in the community, as he kept saying. Well, I do not believe, and I, do, I think the conservative sensibility rejects the idea that America is about majority rule. That is, it's not about a process majority rule. It's about a condition liberty. And to the extent that, and there are many ways in which this is true, majorities threaten liberty illegitimately. Obviously, majorities should rule where government is going to rule. But the fact is that uh, majorities can be tyrannical and they can be self-interested. And furthermore, as I argue at length in, in that chapter, most of what governments do have nothing to do with majorities. They have to do with government responding to compact, articulate, confident, and well-lawyered minorities who can, because they have lots of social advantages, they can understand the levers and pulleys of the modern state and manipulate them for our advantage. This is why I, I think Elizabeth Warren has a firm grip on half a point. She says, look, there is a reason why five of the ten richest counties in America by per capita income are in the Washington area. Washington doesn't make anything, laws and regulations and trouble, has no natural resources. But there are trillions of dollars sloshing through the system here and, and deflected and controlled by this. And uh, the government often is the captive of these factions. Then she inexplicably says, well, the answer is to make the government very much bigger and very much more involved in allocating wealth and opportunity. Well, it seems to me that you'll, you're just going to make matters very much worse. Let me put a pin in her answer because I want to come back to it. But one question this raises is right now, the president of the United States was the runner-up in the popular vote. The Senate is controlled by the party that got fewer votes than the minority party. The Supreme Court is because of that controlled by Republicans, um, which it wouldn't be if these things had gone the other way. Are we really in a country where the majority controls so little, so deeply in danger of tyrannical majority rule? We're in danger of 
tyrannical minority rule inflicted by supposedly majoritarian institutions. That is, uh, it's particularly evident at, at the state level where you have all kinds of rent-seeking, protect, domestic protectionism of various interests passed by majoritarian institutions, but in no conceivable way responsive to majorities. Again, responsive to compact minorities. So this seems to be then, because I agree with that part, this seems to be then a place where you do have a deep divergence. And I actually am glad you brought up Warren's view of this there. Because one view is to say that in a country where you have this much government and this poor level of responsiveness, you just can't have this much government. Um, otherwise, it will endlessly be corrupt. And then there's another argument, which I do think is, tends to be the progressive argument, that the government needs to do these things. Um, the government in a country like America is always going to be rich, even if you cut it by quite a bit. And so the thing to do is work really hard on anti-corruption and campaign finance reform and try to cut the approaches into government that you see, which other countries have done to, to greater or lesser degrees. I think a lot of people say would say the Nordic countries or even Canada have less corrupted governments than we do. Um, and some of that is in how you build elections. That right there, this question of do you want to try to treat the symptom of capture uh, and, and try to manage it as you go along or simply not create all that much to capture is often, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the true dividing line. But then in a system built for gridlock, we end up doing neither. <laughs> yeah, of course, my view is that gridlock often is not an American problem. It's an American achievement that a great many People in the world live under governments they wish were capable of being gridlocked. That when the founders went to Philadelphia in 1787, they did not go to, to devise an efficient government. The idea would have appalled them. What they wanted was a safe government. To which end, they produced three branches of government, two branches of the legislative branch, each with its own electoral rhythm and, and uh, constituencies. Uh, judicial review, uh, veto, veto overrides, supermajorities, all kinds of ways to slow the creature down. And yet, I can think of nothing that the American people have wanted intensely and protractedly they did not eventually get. So the, the, the idea that we are really hopelessly gridlocked is absurd. People say, well, nothing gets done under, under the Obama administration. Well, ex nothing except the largest most sweeping financial regulation since the 1930s and the largest in the Affordable Care Act, domestic welfare legislation since 1965. So we were talking when we started the podcast about how I live in California now. And as a Californian, I have a lot of experience with gridlock. Um, I grew up here. I grew up outside of LA. I live in <laughs> Northern California now. And I always think it's actually a better metaphor for government than people give it credit for. Because when you have gridlock, what happens is not that nothing moves. It's that People begin taking weird city streets and they get places slowly and they're angry when they get there. And gridlock does not, uh, as California will attest, stop people from going places. It more changes how they end up getting there and it tends to worsen it. And that seems to me to be true for how American gridlock functions. I take your point that, well, I don't think I would say there's nothing the American people have wanted in a intense and protracted way that they have not gotten. I think universal health care is something they've wanted and have not gotten. Nevertheless, it is true that well, things why, do why ultimately get done. It? Why haven't they gotten it? Because in America, the institutions through which you would have to push something like that 
are extremely difficult. Whereas in other countries, at times when a political majority has been elected based on an argument to create universal health care, working under a parliamentary system, the election of that majority gave that majority more or less a power to pass that law. And so in every country in Western Europe and Canada and Japan, where people gave a majority that power, the majority used it. Here, we've many, many, many times elected a majority that promised universal health care, and it is never pulled poorly to create universal health care, and it has failed over and over and over again. That that may be good or it may be bad, but it's clearly an institutional issue. But take the, the polling today about Medicare for all. Like, Medicare for all polls very well until you say, oh, by the way, that probably means uh, a limited to the vanishing point of private health insurance and support for public for Medicare for all collapses. Uh, so I'm very, very uh, skeptical of uh, most public opinion polls to begin with, but certainly public opinion polls about complex issues like this because people the, the devil is always in the trade-offs and the trade-offs are rarely polled. That's fair enough, but I don't think that actually changes the fact that if we're going to say that majorities want things, then we have to say it through some mixture of they elect the people who promise the things and those things tend to poll well. Um, if the if the standard is going to be that when you poll counterarguments to things, people's minds change, then you know it's very, very hard to extract anything. My point is not here that you can't make a good argument, that it is very hard to extract what the public truly wants in some ontological sense. But in other countries, majorities elected politically tend to have more power to at least put into play what they think the majority wants. And so in America, we just haven't built it like that. You can argue that that's better, although I guess my question for you would be if that's better, then why is it that Canadians are much happier with their healthcare system than we are and the French are much happier with their healthcare system than we are? If this is working well for us, why don't we seem to be happier with it? Well, first of all, there are a lot fewer Canadians to be unhappy or happy with anything. Uh, a, a continental, diverse, complex, 327 million of us make these systems very, very difficult to achieve. And, and again, if we were starting from scratch, which we never are, it, it would be one kind of argument. It's another kind of argument when you're starting from the fact that we have 18% of the American economy in the healthcare sector, that our healthcare sector is larger than all but five nations' economies. So we're not starting from scratch, and we're not going to be able to pull this apart like a tinker toy and reassemble it. Well, I agree that we're, I agree on the point that we're not starting from scratch, but this, it seems to me, goes back to the institutional story. Or another example of this is it's pretty clear that over the past decade or more, um, this is true. George W. Bush tried it. Barack Obama tried it. Obviously, Donald Trump is not. That a majority of the country polled in a million different ways has said they would like this sort of comprehensive immigration reform compromise in which you get more border security yes. and some kind of path to legalization. And under Bush, it died in, I believe it was in the Senate, although I could be wrong. Under Obama, it passed out of the Senate and it was never brought to a vote in the House because the fear was that if it was, it would pass. Um, now we have Donald Trump, who's has if has only increased the popularity of that idea. So, I mean, maybe it'll come in the next couple of years and, and, and this will all look ridiculous, but it seems to me that there are a lot of places where you can look at this and say, we don't get things done, but not only do we not get them done, if we do get parts of them done, in order to get them done, you have to build so much more broad a 
coalition or you have to go through such weird uh, executive branch mechanisms that you get a lot of things that are not really solutions. They're second, third, fifth, tenth best solutions. So DREAM Act is another one. I believe the DREAM Act got under Obama, it passed the House, and then it got 59 votes in the Senate but couldn't clear the filibuster. So then Obama goes for DACA, which is an executive action, goes to your point about irrigation of power to the president, which is a, a function of gridlock, I think, at least in part. Yes. Um, that makes people even angrier because now you've attached not only the controversy of the Dreamer Act itself, but executive branch um, power of that nature to it. And so we're just kind of spinning around in this very <laughs> angry space where there's not really a clear uh, approach to resolution. So it seems to me that everybody is less happy here than you would be if you could have the resolution that at least majority rule can get you. I think you're right, and I think your example of immigration is much stronger than your example of healthcare because people are so invested in the healthcare system they have and so unaware of the agonizing trade-offs that come. I mean, just, just wait till we get a Democratic president and a Democratic House and, the, and Senate, and they say, well, now let's do Medicare for all, and wait till they hear from the rural hospitals. Uh, that is true. I, I mean, all hell is going to break loose. But leaving that, immigration is such an interesting issue because a majority of Republicans favor a path to citizenship, not just legalization, but a path to citizenship for the 11 million who are here uh, illegally. I mean, the, the Dreamers issue is an 80-20 issue. And the fact that we can't move on this does indicate the 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 vetoocracy we live in. I think that may be Frank Fukuyama's description of us, that we have these extraordinarily efficient blocking mechanisms and, and institutions. I, uh, when I travel around the country giving talks, I carry with me the, nine, the 2013 Gang of Eight immigration bill. It is 1,197 pages long. Uh, because they solve all problems at once. They think comprehensive is such a good thing, people think mistakenly, that they're going to comprehensively solve this. In that bill, you will find, because the senators know everything, the proper hourly wage for an immigrant animal sorter, which is 20 cents more than the proper hourly wage for an immigrant nursery worker. Uh, where do these people get this to use Hayek's language, this fatal conceit that they know these things and can control these things. I, I, I show this great herniating volume to audiences. Then I pull out of it the Homestead Act of 1862. In a way, our first immigration law. We, we, had, we had vast open spaces in the United States. Everything on the map west of the Mississippi River was labeled the Great American Desert. We wanted to fill it up. We had steamship companies and railroad companies in Europe trying to get people to immigrate here. So we passed the Homestead Act in 1862 when the country had even bigger problems. It said, come to America, get to work. We'll essentially give you the land after you've worked it for five years. Uh, that and The Homestead Act, actually the copy I, I brandished to my audiences is two pages long. To be fair, the parchment copy in the National Archives is four pages long, still 1,193 pages shorter than the Comprehensive Immigration Bill of 2013. Maybe if we quit trying to do comprehensive things and, and did little bite-sized nibbles at our problems, we'd do better. This argument feels flawed to me 
Because let me ask you the question this way. In truth, if we wrote the Homestead Act today and it did the exact same thing as the Homestead Act did then, given the legal structures we have today, given the things we have built for the public to have comment, given just the way America and American government and American society works, how long do you really think it would be? That's an excellent question, but let's look at it this way. We have, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we have six million unfilled jobs in this country. We have people at our border clamoring to get in to go to work. What's wrong with this picture? Uh, surely we can understand that control of one's borders is an essential attribute of national sovereignty, but surely it is possible to create a immigration system that addresses the real and increasingly pressing economic needs of a country with an aging workforce and 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day. But it turns out when you do that, it just gets, uh, look, I don't have a super strong view on the provision you mentioned in the bill. Look, I can write a smaller bill, but what happens when you write the smaller bill um, in a lot of respects is it then ends up with something like, and the labor secretary shall designate. And there's a, a, neat, a neat bit in your <laughs> yeah. book where you talk about walking into Mike Lee's office, yeah. and Mike Lee will show you a bill that's you know a thousand pages or six hundred pages, and then show you the twenty thousand pages of regulations it creates. Um, Dodd Frank was very much like this. It's worse than that. You'll see two stacks of papers. One's about four inches high. That's what Congress did in terms of laws in a particular session. The other is eight feet high. And that's the rules and regulations whereby the executive agencies and independent agencies of the administrative state actually do the legislating, actually write the laws. Congress passes what Christom Youth calls velities. We shall have a clean environment. You guys over there, fill in the details. We should have quality education for all. You people over there, you, you do the trade-offs. But, but this, to me, is the point that somebody's going to end up filling in. The, you can write things where there's less regulation. I'm not arguing that on the margin a lot of things can't be smaller. But I think this idea that you can tell either the quality or realisticness of legislation by its length is just I, – I don't – look, I'm not a lawyer, and like everybody who's not a lawyer, I'm annoyed to some degree by <laughs> legal structures and formalities – but I also recognize that a lot of them are there um, for at least some reason, and particularly in a world where if people are arguing for much more expansive versions of judicial review, making sure that things are well-defined such that boundaries and authorities are to some degree erected, it strikes me as you're trying to put people a little bit in an impossible position here. Well, in the closing weeks of the most recent Supreme Court uh, term in late June, a decision was handed down that indicated that there is now a five-judge majority, justice majority on the Supreme Court for re-examining the non-delegation doctrine. In 1935, in the Schechter case and one other case, in 1935 was the last time the court struck down a law on the principle that the Congress had delegated to the executive branch, essentially legislative powers that Congress has no right to divest itself of. The first substantive words of our Constitution, that is the first words after the preamble, is all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. And we may be, and this is a, a real judicial revolution, we may be seeing the beginning of the judicial supervision of what Congress can and cannot do with its own powers. 
So you argue for a much more expansive version of judicial review. And we were talking a couple minutes ago about the ways in which government ends up being, to the frustration of many, ultimately accountable to small organized minorities. If judges were indeed these supra-political figures who existed with no allegiance to anything but the Constitution, it would be one thing. But as it is, judges are increasingly highly politicized figures who come up through a long um, association with whatever political party ends up appointing them. And so the idea that we're going to invest them with much more power at a time when, in many ways, the fundamental problem with the constitutional structure is that you have two parties competing across branches as opposed to branches competing with each other. I'm not exactly sure what that gets you, save for a magnification of the issue that we now have party competition and not constitutional competition. You're, look, you're quite right to worry about judges. I worry about everyone who exercises political power and ju judicial power, all of this. People say, well, George, aren't, aren't you afraid of what they, they will do? And I say, yeah, I am, but I'm less afraid of them than I am of what the administrative state does and what Congress does to enable the administrative state to do what it does. There's no safety in politics. There's no safe haven. Uh, I just think that at this point in our history, that the court really is, for reasons not the ones Hamilton was referring to when he coined the phrase, it is the least dangerous branch. Tell me a bit more about why, though, because I think the place a lot of judges have come down on this is that given the credibility issues of their own profession, it's safer to at least rely on Congress and legislatures and others as representing some kind of will because if it's just the judges making their own arguments, well, then you end up in this place where the judiciary begins to lose credibility quite quickly because people disagree with the arguments. And so if you have this kind of judicial review, how do you prevent that from happening? What makes the judicial review so much fun, and, and this is why, uh, I, I, one of the reasons why I say John Marshall is, after Lincoln and Washington, the third most important American from public life, is that in, in uniquely in judicial review, the court has to say why it is doing what it's doing. It has to reason from precedent, and it has to reason from political philosophy. People often say, well, isn't it interesting that Americans don't do political philosophy? They have the Federalist Papers and nothing much after that. So absolutely wrong. The Supreme Court reports are where we do political philosophy, where we reason about the meaning of equality and freedom and justice and all the rest. There's no question that judges... Um, and Chief Justice Roberts is a particularly good example, are very wary of this. What I'm saying is too bad. Uh, you have to take the risk. You have to, to uh, bear the heat because you are defending a super permanent majority, that is the majority that, that launched the country, wrote the Constitution, and made it possible but difficult to amend. Let me ask you about that. So you have a very interesting paragraph on constitutional interpretation, and you write that the threshold question when evaluating any particular mode of construing the Constitution is whether the mode would dictate declaring public school segregation unconstitutional. No acceptable theory for construing the Constitution can invalidate the court's conclusion in Brown. And given that a lot of the theory here is that we should go back to the founders' intent, and the founders clearly thought segregation much worse was constitutional, and Brown was built around the later 14th Amendment, it's hard for me to reconcile the faith 
you place in arguing from founder's intent with a threshold test like that one? Here's here's where you and I would differ only on, the, on what I'm referring to when I refer to the founder's intent. What were they trying to produce? They were trying to produce a free society respectful of a vast scope of individual autonomy exercising natural rights. You referred about some minutes ago to my doctrine this sort of living originalism. As I'm sure you know, that's the title of a book by Jack Balkan of the Yale Law School, where I tend to agree that that's far short of a living constitution. It's living originalism in that it's the original intent, which is broadly libertarian for our society, applied to today's circumstances. I love all the recondite hair splitting on uh, this kind of originalist and that kind of originalist, but I, I keep coming back to uh, one of the reasons why Scalia des- described himself as a faint-hearted originalist. I think he foundered on the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment forbids cruel and unusual punishments. Now we know what was being done to punish people at the time the founders wrote that. So if you simply take the original public meaning of the word cruelty, we would not be able to strike down a law today, branding, cropping ears, flogging, pillaring, etc. But instead we say, look what the founders intended. Their original intent was to get rid of cruelty. And uh, we've changed our minds about cruelty. And that's perfectly permissible, but the original intent was still there, that cruelty shall not be practiced in the United States. But this is why I find myself so skeptical of this approach, because it's not that I don't enjoy it. I'm a pundit who makes my living arguing stuff about politics. So (laughs) I, I appreciate anybody else who wants to do it too. But this seems to me to be substituting uh, what ends up being a debater's club for for something deeper, dressing it up as something it, it doesn't deserve to be. Th- this kind of approach, because there's so much one can find in the history of the arguments. You have a lovely line in the book about if you don't like argument, America is the wrong country for you. Because there's so much one can find and, and argue from, and because what one thing we very much do know about human nature is we all find arguments that uh, appeal to our ends more convincing than than those that don't, we end up in a place where Sure, there are wrong answers about the Constitution. There are things I can say that are clearly in violation of the text. But there isn't a right answer to a lot of these hard problems. There is a range of them. And you end up in a space where what you have is answers that are generated by power and ideology that people are calling constitutional truth. I think one reason people like me often just prefer majority rule through, I would like more, but nevertheless reasonably representative institutions, is that at least it's clear what's going on here and what the what the form of accountability is and how people can change it as opposed to running this dance where the two sides are fighting to death over the Supreme Court so they can put on it people who agree with them but are good at dressing that agreement up in constitutional language. Well, yeah, I, I think you're a Holmesian. Um, much more presentable than the original, but a Holmesian nonetheless. I often uh, think of myself as a presentable Holmesian. <laughs> well, good. Uh, no, uh, I understand your point, and, and it, it comes down often to what, what do you fear most? And, and uh, you and I fear different things. You fear uh, the atrophying of democratic muscles, uh, small d democratic muscles, the uh, atrophying of the the strong sinews and of 
of popular government. Uh, I fear much more the inevitable capture of sprawling administrative state by determined, muscular, skillful, articulate, confident, well-lawyered factions. My view is very much informed by public choice theory, which reduced to its essence is that people in the private sector try to maximize their interest, often profit. People in the public sector do exactly the same thing. They, they try to maximize their uh, power. And that uh, if, if you desentimentalize your view of government, uh, you will come to a, a conclusion that there is uh, more to fear than uh, an attenuation of majority rule. So I think there's something to that. I think the place where I would differ is it's completely true that I fear the the attenuation of popular rule. In fact, I don't think we have it clearly enough. But the thing that worries me about all versions of American politics right now, no matter whether you're running it through the judiciary or you're running it through the representative institutions, is that the fundamental <laughs> defiler of the order is everything actually comes down to party competition in a system not built for that kind of party competition. And so the judicial process, something that concerns me about it, is that it has become a particularly clarified form of party competition and that those are the factions that in many ways worry me the most. It isn't to say that the corrupting factions, the paper manufacturers, the, you know, the folks running through and lobbying Congress are not a real problem. But if we're worried about factions, it seems to me the factions that are fundamentally dominant now are two-party factions. And to give to give them even more power split away from accountability mm -hmm. seems like a problem. I, it seems to me somehow we need to think about reducing the power of those factions and you know, just creating more power in the judiciary. I worry that what you're just going to end up with is the po the less popularly capable faction just become just uses that as its branch of power. That is a, a, a real danger because, and you're quite right to focus on the political parties, which the founders neither anticipated nor desired, but found themselves living with 10 years after they ratified the Constitution. What the party system has done is destroy the Madisonian equilibrium. Madison assumed that presidents and Congress would be rivals, and this would be a constructive, creative freedom-enhancing rivalry. Now, today, because the modern presidency, and in my book, I, I'm, I go on and on and on at great length about how we came to, to have this fundamentally unrepublican, small-r, unrepublican kind of government revolving around presidential power. Once you get settled with this, then the the members of the president's party in Congress think of themselves as subordinate team players and that their job is not to defend the dignity and independent interests and independent judgments of their branch of government, but to facilitate the president's uh, agenda and even his whims. And this means that the, the whole equilibrium that Madison tried to build into our system gets turned over because people uh, simply no longer identify with their institutions as senators and as members of Congress. It's one of the reasons why I have come uh, reluctantly but firmly to, to believe in term limits for the national legislature so that people will think less about long careers, less, as the saying goes, less about the next election and more about the next generation. 
I agreed with that so much until the point about term limits. But <laughs> I, knew, I know I that knew. you are on a schedule today and, and uh, I can't take much more of your time. So this is, I think, a good spot to end. So let me ask you the question we used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books um, that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I'll give you a couple. One is, um, uh, this is a cliche almost, but the Federalist Papers. I, I started life as a professor of political philosophy and uh, – the more I read, the more impatient I get with people who say, why have we never produced Locke's Second Treatise or Hobbes' Leviathan? We did. The Federalist Papers is, a, is a, just a brilliant exercise in political philosophy by practicing politicians, which is why it's so good. I'll give you another book that uh, stimulated my thinking. I didn't wind up where he did, but it really turned my, me around as in my first year in graduate school. I read Walter Burns, who was a professor of political philosophy and a constitutional law scholar, wrote a book called Freedom, Virtue, and the First Amendment. And it's a, Walter was a, an East Coast Straussian. And uh, I know that's kind of inside baseball, but there you are. Uh, and he was a student of Leo Strauss, and he got me interested in uh, statecraft as soulcraft. George Will, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you to George Will for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. As always, my email is EzraKlineShow at Vox.com. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.